I believe this is the very first return of the best case ever, because normally physicians only have one best case ever. But my friend and education innovator, Rob Rogers, told me about this case that he had that was just so good that I invited him back for a second time to do his best case ever. So Dr. Rogers, let it rip. What's your next best case ever? All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back on uh, your podcast. I would absolutely follow you to the innermost depths of hell to podcast with you, Anton. So it's a pleasure, <laughs> pleasure to be on your, your awesome podcast. You're doing very well. This case actually involves my mother, and it's kind of a preamble to a talk that I'm going to give at the SMAC course in 2015. I intended to actually write this up many years ago, and it never happened. But this case involves my mom, and let me just give you the background in just a couple of minutes or so. So in 2005, I was actually at the Nice conference in the Mediterranean, and somewhere around three in the morning, I get a phone call from a good friend of mine, Mike Winters. My mother had uh, developed uh, some bradycardia, and I'll explain that in just a minute, and was taken to the hospital. And uh, Mike Winters calls me at three in the morning and says, your mom's been admitted to an intensive care unit. The long and short of it is my uh, mother was supposed to go to work one day. She lives alone, and she didn't show up for work, and so uh, her work, her place of employment called some friends and said she didn't show up. It's very unusual. So some friends of hers called her house, and she didn't answer the phone. They show up at the house, and they can see through a window that she's kind of moving in bed, not, not doing too much, and so they break the door down, and they go into my mom's room, and she's mumbling, doesn't recognize her friends. These are friends she's known for many, many years. So instantly something's wrong, and she's taken to the hospital via 911. And I'm being told all of this on the phone as I'm in France trying to wake up. It's a bad story. So she's taken to the local emergency department, and she's had a pulse rate somewhere around 25:30 on the way to the hospital. So clearly she gets to the emergency department. She's bradycardic, very confused. The initial thought is, well, she needs a pacemaker. She's not perfusing her brain. This is pure cardiac. So they, they get a cardiologist involved, and she's taken from the emergency department actually to the cath lab for a pacemaker. And after that, she's sent to the ICU, and she's still confused, doesn't recognize family. And after about a day, and this is now what is being told to me on the phone, that the cardiologist said, I really think something else is going on. This is not cardiac. It didn't really resolve the problem. So they put her in the ICU, and by that time, probably 18 hours into her initial stay, right after she hits the door, she's now febrile, and she's seen by a neurologist who said, well, she's got some deficits, she's got a fever, but now she has a pacemaker, and we can't get an MRI. So she had a CT scan initially, which was read as negative. So he told me over the phone, and I'm in Nice, France, trying to wake up. The neurologist said, I think your mom's had a stroke. And it kind of sounded like she'd had a stroke, but the fever went a little bit higher, and, and this went on for days. And, and it turns out we had great difficulty getting back to the States from France uh, with my family. I was traveling with my five-year-old and my one-year-old, so it was, it was tough. We finally make it back to the United States, and this is now day four or five. And it took about five days for someone to say, maybe we should do a lumbar puncture on her. And looking back on this case... She's altered. She's confused. She doesn't know family members. She develops a fever. And looking back on it in hindsight, it seems pretty clear that someone should have done an LP maybe sooner. So they finally do a lumbar puncture. And by this time, she's nearly intubated and, and very sick. And now on a repeat CT scan, she's got some blood in the bilateral temporal lobes. Now it's pretty clear this, is, this really looks like herpes. So she does get a tap. She has over 2,000 white cells, and it comes back PCR positive for herpes. 
And then they add acyclovir, and now she's seen by infectious disease. And by that time, you know, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, she's super sick. She develops edema. She's intubated and intubated for weeks. And she never recovered. You know, she went to a nursing home. This is now, you know, nine years later, and she still doesn't know family. She doesn't know her names. And it's a very sad case. And people ask, why why talk about it? But I think it highlights three important points that we all face and that this could happen to anybody. I mean, this is a case of devastating herpes encephalitis. So for emergency medicine folks, there's a couple things to take away. And for for whatever reason, I see this frequently where the resident or the attending or everyone seems to have a reluctance to do a lumbar puncture on someone, right? They they blame it on the urine. They blame it on the chest x-ray. They simply call it altered mental status. Let's admit the patient to medicine. And for some reason, we're I think sometimes we're scared to do a lumbar puncture. Here's a case looking back and after having talked to family and, and the nurses, and and I actually heard my mother speak on the phone when I was in France trying to get back to the States. There was something really wrong with her. And I think that if someone's not acting right and it's an acute change, this was clear-cut acute mental status change. Something's I mean, she didn't even know her friends' names. You gotta pull out the lumbar puncture. You know, had the diagnosis been made, I think she might have done better. I think that's one pearl is have a very low threshold. We all talk about have a low threshold to do this, low threshold to do that. And if you have a low index of suspicion, as Mel Herbert said, then pretty soon all you're left with is low index of suspicion for everything. So you can't work up everything, but when you're faced with a patient like this and you can't explain it, I think you got to do that lumbar puncture. I think that's the one point. Don't have the reluctance to do that. The other point that I'll make is she had a fever. And I've talked to several neurologists since this illness. And if you look at the textbooks, a really good teaching pearl is if you have a febrile patient with stroke-like symptoms, that's a very, very classic presentation of herpes encephalitis. You got to pull out the acyclovir, do the lumbar puncture, make sure you're not dealing with it. And then the other thing is once you've tapped a patient, another good teaching pearl. And the third one I think is important is Add that acyclovir early on with your other antibiotics. So if you're treating bacterial meningitis, just add the acyclovir. If it looks like aseptic meningitis, and Stuart Swadron wrote a very good paper on this, and the take-home point from that was if you tap someone and it looks like aseptic meningitis, mainly lymphocytes, add the acyclovir, send off a herpes PCR, and then let the dust settle. And if it's negative, you stop the acyclovir. If it's positive, you keep it going. But other papers have been done on the same topic showing that we really don't do a great job with herpes encephalitis. I mean, it's one of the only meningitides we can actually treat that are viral. And it, and if you catch it early, you can probably make a difference. So it's one of those things that's lurking in our patients. It's not that common. I know you did a podcast on NMDA receptor encephalitis. Is that right? Yeah, anti-NMDA yeah. receptor encephalitis with David Carr. And, you know, how much of that are we missing? Is that something we've, we've all missed? I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's probably gone on from the emergency department to the ICU and the diagnosis is made later. I think that's probably something that we should be talking about more as well. I think we're great with bacterial meningitis. We're great with subdurals. We're great with obvious reasons for mental status changes. But I think if you're going to be a really good emergency clinician, there's a couple of zebras that you got to, and I really don't think they're as much a zebra as we think they are. I think we got to keep a couple of these things in our back pocket. And when that patient's altered and, and, or having seizures or status, you got to get that LP. You got to make sure you're not dealing with some other entities that we really don't focus that much on in the textbooks. And herpes encephalitis is definitely one of them. This case really taught me that when I hear this discussion at sign out, for example, 
you know, we, we thought about doing an LP, but, you know, we can let medicine do that. And then I go in the room and the, and the guy is confused and the family says, this is very acute and this is a clear cut change. So I say, pull it out earlier. My big take home message from this is simply think about this diagnosis more in your altered patients, your febrile patients. If they're febrile and they look like they have a stroke, you got to think about herpes and cephalitis. And then when in doubt, just add IV acyclovir to whatever regimen you're giving the patient in case it turns out to be herpes encephalitis. I mean, it's a devastating disease. Now, it turns out she presented with severe bradycardia. Well, if you look in the literature, there's several case reports of herpes encephalitis, really bad cases, presenting as bradycardias that required pacemakers. And she fit that to the T. And honestly, I think given the time frame she was in the emergency department, that's probably why no one thought about the diagnosis. And, and I'm not pointing fingers and, and blame. I think it looked like a severe bradycardia. And of course, if you see a patient, right, Anton, with a pulse of 20, you're going to be thinking you got to do something. And usually that's a transcutaneous pacer, maybe an early or, you know, some epi. But, you know, you're going to be thinking, I think this patient needs a transvenous pacer. And so I can't fault them for that. But just keep that classic reference in mind that there are some case reports of this presenting as a severe unexplained bradycardia and the confused patient. That's another sort of adjunctive take-home point. But don't forget that lumbar puncture. Pull that out early. Don't be afraid to do it. It's a fun procedure. And frequently you'll uncover something that may very well lead to making a significant difference in that patient's life and maybe even preventing severe disability. I mean, my mom doesn't know me. You know, that's pretty devastating to have to deal with. And so I don't want anybody to have to go through this. And I don't want, you know, I think these your podcast and, and all of us in the foam and social media world, we want to do better, right? The SMAC conference is based on the fact that we just want to be better at what we're doing and be smarter and, and kinder and, and better physicians. And I, I think we have to think about stuff like this uh, and talk about it. Yeah, Rob, I really admire your courage for talking about your mom's case like this. It's really amazing. My jaw has been on the floor the whole time you've been talking. To take home some of those pearls... One, as, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the cognitive decision-making biases we have. And this was almost like a confirmation bias. It's like you find that first thing wrong, yeah. bradycardia, put in the pacer, you stop there. Right. You know, the, the classic simple one is, you know, finding a fracture and then just assuming that there is no other fracture. You know, you got to look for that second fracture every time you find a fracture. Right. The other thing that we talked about in our episode on geriatric emergency medicine with Don Mulady and Jack Lee was that delirium is missed very often in the emergency department, way too much, and that it carries a high mortality and morbidity rate. Right. And it's just the simplest question. All you have to do is ask someone in the family, whether that's by telephone or at the bedside, has there been a change in their mental status? Are they behaving any differently than normal? One question. And that one question can trigger you to be working up the cause of their delirium and, and focus you in on it. Those are some great pearls about when we need to be doing LPs. We're doing less and less LPs because more and more people are immunized against meningococcal disease and because our CTs are getting better and better and people are presenting earlier and earlier with their subarachnoid hemorrhages. It's actually quite seldom that we need to go to LP. Even if we haven't done a lot of LPs, we need to be concentrating on teaching our learners how to do LPs properly to become comfortable with them and to do them in the right setting. And any altered patient where you don't have a good answer, 
could be bacterial meningitis, could be herpes encephalitis, could be anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And so don't be shy with your LP. You know what's right. Just do what's right for the patient. You know, Rob, that gets me thinking about how families advocate for their patient. And to be honest, a lot of times when families are advocating for the patient, I find myself getting sort of irritated and I feel like they're kind of putting a roadblock into what I need to get done in the emergency department. What take-home message can you give our listeners about families advocating for their patients and how we should deal with that? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. And you know, I distinctly remember asking this neurologist on the phone from France, do you think she needs a lumbar puncture? And he, he sounded very confident and said, no, I think this is a stroke. And you know, it turns out, obviously, it wasn't a stroke. It was devastating herpes encephalitis, and that's a very bad, rare example. But, you know, we're bombarded daily with with people asking us to do this, and do you think dad needs a CT scan? And, you know, sometimes that can get in the way of your own thoughts, and most of the time the answer is, no, we don't need to do that. I mean, I know what I'm doing. But having had a couple of instances clinically over the years when I've been working, when you get that little voice on your shoulder after a, maybe a, a mom or a daughter or someone has said, do you think we should do X? And that little voice says, you might want to listen to her this time, or you may want to listen to this guy. There, there's something, I think that there's this voice inside of us that listens to those comments. And then I think there's a bigger voice that turns them off and says, I'm the doctor. I don't, I don't need to be told how to do a lumbar puncture or a CT scan. So my advice would be, be humble, be humble. I mean, we're there to serve. People forget that this is a service industry. People who forget that become unhappy because if a mom or a daughter or a brother or someone says, you know, something's going on and I'm not comfortable, do you think you should do a lumbar puncture? Usually we say, forget about it. I mean, medicine's going to admit this, admit them and, you know, they'll take care of it and all is well. But if you've got that voice, listen to that voice because that voice may very well save you in the eyes of the patient's family. It actually may lead to a better outcome for that patient and it makes you a better doctor. Physicians, nurses, other people in, in healthcare who don't listen to those little complaints or those little suggestions, they haven't really figured out what this is all about. And what this is really all about is, is we're here to serve patients and their families. And if you're in this for other reasons, it's probably time for you to move on to something else and reconsider your choices in your career. That doesn't mean that you order a stupid test just because the wife says, get this test. But I think we have to listen and swallow your pride and just step back and say, that's not a bad idea. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's something we will do. You don't have to tell the patients that. But when they give you these little suggestions, sometimes, and nurses do this too, like, hey, do you think we should do this? Don't say, no, I'm the doctor. You're the nurse. I don't want to do this test. I'm not going to do it. Those little voices are there for a reason. And sometimes the reason is to save your butt and to, to lead to a better patient outcome. So my big piece of advice, swallow your pride, be good at what you do, listen. We have good filters. We know what's BS and what isn't, right? We can do that. And if they want like a brain biopsy for a headache patient, we know that's a silly thing to even think about. But if it's a reasonable test and you pause for a second and you ask yourself, is this something I need to do? Did this family member just remind me of something I should do to begin with? Maybe it is something you should do. So swallow your pride. Be good at what you do. Don't discount people because they're not the doctor. They're not the healthcare provider. And do what's right. Having been through this with my mother and walking into the intensive care unit with her utterly struggling to breathe with a GCS of three and looking at her and realizing she's not intubated and asking myself, why is she not intubated? I had to get the team to intubate her. I, I, I said, can you come look at her? She's comatose and she's got sonorous respirations. 
I don't know why they hadn't intubated her. So taking this from a personal standpoint where I saw so many things go wrong with this, with the care of my mom and so many times where I had to advocate for my mom. And clearly I, I know more about what's going on than others, not in the healthcare profession, but having been there and having the anguish of seeing your mom dying and trying to advocate for your mom and having family members rely on you to advocate and get things done just realize your patients are going through the same thing, right? We go through the same rigmarole of showing up for our shift and you finish your shift and you go home and it is a job and it's a fun job, but it's a job. And sometimes I think we forget the personal aspect that they're, they're hurting. These people are hurting sometimes. A lot of the times they're not, and it's not a very sick patient, but for critical patients, patients who clearly have something acute wrong with them, the families frequently they're hurting. And if you can just remember what it's like to be a physician or nurse, why you went into this to begin with, then you'll be more apt to actually listen to the voice instead of ignore it. Don't ignore that voice. So Rob, again, that was incredibly courageous of you to be able to tell this case. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me uh, on your podcast, Anton. You're, do- you're doing a great job. I love love this podcast. And I'll end by saying that this case, we've talked about my mom's case, which I've talked about for years. I'm going to talk about in greater detail at the SMAC conference in June, which is going to be in Chicago, where we are right now. And I'm going to use this case to to launch into what this case actually did to me personally, which was utterly devastate my ability to have empathy in the emergency department. I went through a period of many months where I I just I couldn't come to grasp with she didn't die she's still alive so I, I didn't have to grieve her loss but in a sense my family had to grieve that we're never getting her back that she's never going to know us she's not going to know my kids and it's it's been utterly utterly devastating and you know for a period of about a year this really affected my life and the more I talked about this case to other people who've also been through personal tragedy whether it's a death or an illness or, 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 or anything like that, it affects what we do daily with our family and it affects how we are as clinicians. And sometimes for the worse, it can really affect us. And this destroyed me for about a year. And I learned a ton about myself and my family, but more importantly, I learned some tools that anyone can use to get back to being a good doctor and a good person after personal loss. And what I'm going to do at Smack is teach people hopefully the lessons of this story, not necessarily medically, but how do you get back to being you after a personal loss or personal tragedy? But I think people will come away with a message that despite what happens to us in life, we can get back to that doctor that we want to be or the nurse that we want to be or whatever it is. And so that's the lessons I'm going to talk about. So thank you for having me on the, on the podcast to just kind of air that out a little bit and maybe get people ready for this because it's going to be some good stuff. 